Take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 18. We're going to look at Numbers 18 and 19 today. 54 verses, I think. We're not going to read them all. We're going to jump around in the reading. I, uh, I have a, an appreciation for this category of Scripture, this passage that we're going to read here. And um, the word that I think many of us would probably assign, it's an incorrect one, but one that might kind of jump to the front of our minds is that it would be boring. Uh, I appreciate that category of Scripture because I think there's no other category that shows my own limitations as a Christian than those. These are no less God's words. They're no less the words of life. And yet, interestingly, at least for me, my heart is one of those where it's like, hey, and I'm out. Uh, and so I would just lovingly rebuke us all, even before we start. Uh, there's your sermon. We can go. Benediction. All right, time to leave. Uh, maybe that even as we read God's word to ask the Lord to speak to us even now. Numbers chapter 18, starting in verse 1. So the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons, your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. And with you bring your brothers also, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may join you and minister to you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of testimony." They shall keep and guard over you and over the whole tent, but shall not come near to the vessels of the sanctuary or to the altar, lest they and you die. They shall join you and keep guard over the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, and no outsider shall come near you. And you shall keep guard over the sanctuary and over the altar, that there may never again be wrath on the people of Israel." And behold, I've taken your brothers, the Levites, from among the people of Israel. They are a gift to you, given to the Lord to do the service of the tent of meeting. And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil. And you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death." Skip ahead to verse 21. To the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they sin and die. But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said of them that they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel." 
Skipping ahead, one more passage. Chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its skin, its flesh, its blood with its dung shall be burned." And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean till evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening." And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It's a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Let's pray. Lord, we readily admit our frailty, and passages like this highlight it, and so we ask that your Spirit would be strong in our weakness, give life and light to our heart that our faith might increase, we pray for Christ's sake, amen. I hope you remember Maybe it might be a couple of years gone past, but that experience in school where kind of the light bulb went off, and you're like, I understand, and kind of all new understanding comes into your brain, and a thing that had kind of limited significance, limited value, limited importance, suddenly becomes incredibly interesting and helpful and useful. I remember for myself, one of those moments in my life was when I began to understand symbolism in literature. You think, really? (laughs) All right. So growing up, our family, one of our family movies, one of the ones that we watched often as a family, I don't know why it terrified us when we were little, uh, was The Wizard of Oz, right? One of those great movies with the creepiest flying monkeys in the history of film. They're dreadful. As a family, we enjoyed that, and we laughed, and we could quote it, and we could, you know, terrorize my mother or whatever else. It wasn't until middle school, though, that I actually began to study how that story came to be. I thought it was just a really interesting kid story, until you begin to realize middle school learning, oh, no, he's actually writing about the gold standard, right? The entire book is actually not a children's story at all. It's a parable for American history, and he was challenging American financial policy by challenging how we viewed the gold standard, thus the entire story centering on the yellow brick road. And it was like my head exploded. Ah, new meaning. I don't, uh, it's not just a story designed to terrify children with music that gets stuck in your head. It's challenging me to think about financial policy and how do I evaluate what's good and right and beautiful and true. 
in our nation. Beginning to understand that symbolism reshapes how we view literature. It, It takes a story and adds not just a story, but a meaning to the story. It, it adds structure to the story. It lets us see how it comes to bear on life. So then you get older and you read. Uh, maybe you read this in literature class, The Glass Menagerie, Tennessee Williams. Maybe not. Shows the just despair that comes into a world that has nothing but superficial things, or the one that's been popular recently, The Great Gatsby with the eyes on the billboard. It begins to bring meaning and understanding to the literature itself. Some of you already have checked out of this sermon. (laughs) Terrible intro, right? You're done. And actually, that's what I was setting you up for because that's why you check out of the book of Numbers. That's why you get into Numbers 17, 18, 19, and you're like, hey, the ground's not eating anybody anymore? I'm kind of bored now. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you only really have one chapter to wait, you know, and uh, or a couple. We've got really weird things coming in just a moment. But uh, 18 and 19, again, because it actually shows our weakness in literature, we get bored with them so easily because it's just a list of things I think I've already heard. The reality of the matter is it's showing our limitations in understanding. It's showing that we don't pay attention to how literature as a whole works. Because what's happening in chapters, uh, really, 17, 18, 19, is a story of people complaining. And you're like, I've kind of heard that story. I mean, they've told it, what, four times already in this book alone. They won't stop complaining. The ground eats them, they complain. The ground doesn't eat them, they complain. Everything they do is complaining. Complaining against God, complaining against what God is doing, even complaining about when he kills them. Even until it builds to this kind of point at the end of chapter 17, and I read it in the whiniest voice I could last week, because they get to this kind of just petulant, childish, over-the-top Behold, we perish, we're undone, we're all undone. Everyone who comes near, comes near to the tabernacle, the Lord shall die. Are we all going to perish? This kind of over-the-top, melodramatic, are we all going to die? Right, this is a middle school student speaking right here. Are we all going to die? And because we tend to read this only as just the simple story and and miss the kind of bigger picture of what God's doing in literature, we go, well, okay, are they all going to die? Well, yeah, I know they're all dead. This is thousands of years ago. They died a long time ago. Spoiler, they're all gone. But instead, we, we miss the big picture. That what God is doing is he's actually telling not just the story of these grumblers and complainers, but he's telling the entirety of the story of creation through symbolism. Not just in a, a yellow brick road that travels with the wicked witch. Notice where those wicked witches are from is very interesting. But here what he's doing is he's teaching people about the need for someone to save them. In fact, actually, Numbers chapters 18 and 19 are two very, very clear chapters about Jesus Christ himself. 
In fact, actually, there's a number of different categories. That what this is is they're snapshots, they're prophecies, they're foreshadowings of what Jesus would be. So that when Christ stepped inside time and space, when he stepped inside the womb of Mary, when he stepped inside of the creation that he himself had made, that his people wouldn't be surprised to see him. Now, this is a thing that a lot of times is really kind of lost on us as New Testament Christians because we kind of assume that every reader had the same amount of knowledge that we do, which is a mistake. And as a result, we again lose some of the value of passages like Numbers 18 and 19. So our goal today in the sermon is going to be to try to see Jesus in Numbers 18 and 19. We're going to look at kind of pictures of Jesus, hopefully, uh, little Polaroid snapshots, uh, if you're old enough to know what those are, of what Christ looks like, and why the Jews, in some sense, should have been ready to see him. Now, first snapshot really comes in verse 1 as an answer to verses 12 and 13 of the previous chapter. They've asked this kind of petulant, melodramatic question of, are we all going to die? Right? If, if we keep complaining and God keeps killing us, chapter 16, the ground opens up and eats them. Chapter 17, you have Aaron's uh, staff that blossoms, almond blossoms, and they're, ah, if God is real and my sin is real, I'm going to die, and they're over the top. But there is actually a truth behind their question, though I think they're asking it dishonestly, which is, what happens because of sin? I mean, the the reality of the matter is it really doesn't take us long to be willing to admit that. In two decades of pastoral ministry and pastoral counseling and evangelism and such, I've only run into, I think, two or three people that were willing to contest the doctrine of sin. Most people are like, yeah, I know I mess up. Yeah, that's right, you do. So are we all going to die because of that? What's going to be the remedy? What's going to be the solution to that sin? Because in some fashion, they do have the right idea that we really honestly all deserve the ground to open up and eat us. I mean, if grumbling were enough to send us to eternal punishment, we'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? I mean, let's be honest, how many of you grumbled this morning? Okay, yesterday. Okay, in your head in the last 10 minutes during my intro. Hey, we're all busted on that one. But interestingly, already God's beginning to instruct His people because even what He's, he's kind of presenting as a category for how death is to be prevented Notice what he says. So it, the Lord said to, not Moses here, interestingly, he addresses Aaron. He begins with a conversation to say, hey, you want to have your sin fixed. You want to not perish for the grumbling you've done. You want to survive the sins that you've committed. We have to have a conversation about priests. I mean, we're in America. We don't do a priest that way. We don't do that. Why would we talk about that? But interestingly, God's introducing a category for them. So you, the high priest, what does he say? You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. You are going to be the men 
that are responsible for the relationship between God and His people. Between God and His people that in this time in which this was written, remember, the way you interacted with God, Scriptures aren't written, certainly not the New Testament. How did you interact with God? Well, you went to a geographical location that was specifically Israel, wherever they were traveling, and the tent of meeting was in the inside of their camp, right? Their camp was laid out in a square, and in the very center was the house of meeting, the Holy of Holies, God's tabernacle. If you wanted to relate with God, if you wanted to know Him and be known by Him, you had to go to that geographic location, which would have in many ways been terrifying because you know that the God who destroys sinners lives right there. And remember that when it's time for him to move his people, how does he show up? We know this pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud during the day. I love just to contemplate the realities of the Bible. How big does a pillar of fire have to be for a million and a half people to see it? How big does a pillar of smoke have to be for a a million and a half people to see it? I love how in in the movies when they do that, in the old movies, it's it's like a little chimney smoke because that's what they were filming. Realistically, it's probably the largest tornado the world has ever seen. Made of fire at night, made of cloud by day. Horrifying to behold. Already their people are beginning to understand that, look, if my sin is an issue, this is the God that's going to get me. I have a problem. What's the only hope I have? And interestingly, the Lord introduces here again this reoccurring theme of the priesthood. You need a mediator. You need someone to stand between that God and you. You need someone to be responsible for his presence because you can't do it. You're a bozo. You choose the wrong thing at all of the wrong times and at the right times too. You're the problem in the story. We're we're the villains. We're not the heroes. So if we're going to have a happy ending to this story, somebody else has to fix it besides the villain. The villain can't change in this story. So God himself has to. And so interestingly, even in Numbers 18, he's he's prepping them by creating this category of a high priest that will resolve the presence of God. Now, is that an idea that's picked up anywhere else in Scripture? Well, you know, that's why the order of worship is built the way that it is. Numbers, I mean, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and chapters 12. The author of Hebrews makes this point over and over again to say that how is sin resolved? How is sin dealt with? It's dealt with through a high priest. Only that high priest isn't Aaron or Eliezer or any other that would come along the way. That high priest is the great high priest of Jesus. The only one who is the perfect go-between, the only one who is the perfect mediator, the only one who can fully resolve God's relationship with mankind. Jesus is the only one who can prevent the death of God's people due to his wrath. The first snapshot, we see Jesus as priest in verses really one and two. 
The second Polaroid picture is in verses 2 through 7, where we see him as the guard of the person and place of God. The guard of the person and place of God. What happens as follows is here the Lord begins this delineating effort between the priests and the Levites. Now, again, many of us, not being super brilliant Old Testament scholars, we treat those things as identical. They're not. The priesthood was descended from Aaron. Aaron was a piece of the tribe of Levi. So the Levites all were responsible uh, for God's house, but the priests, a small portion of them, were the ones that actually dealt with the insides. But it's interesting, even as we read this, it's like, look, you, you priests, you descendants of Aaron, you and your children after your sons after you, your responsibility will be, verse 3, to keep guard over the whole tent. Your job is to be this person that safeguards God's presence amongst his people and keeps the people from being fools and rushing in where they should not go. I do think it's intriguing constantly the way that we we speak about our faith. We often speak about like, it's my heart that's the problem. Like, my relationship with God is, is, is weak because my heart's the problem, and I need Jesus because my heart doesn't love Jesus, and all those statements are true. But the bigger issue is not my heart, it's God's justice. It's interesting that the priest's job was to guard the holy things of God from the people of God. Because God's perfection is so great, it's so perfect that he can't tolerate sinful people to be in his presence. He cannot tolerate the unclean in his midst. So he sets a buffer around them so that you don't just accidentally wander into the person and place of God. And so interestingly, what these priests become is they become the classic go-between, the mediator, those standing in the gap between the presence of God and the presence of His people. I love how Jesus articulates this even about Himself in John chapter 14. He's fully explained this. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We know that one. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. And from now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. Implication, why? Because you've seen me. He's the one who is the go-between. He's the one who stands in between God and the people and guards the presence of of God Himself. You see, this is why Christianity is so big on the exclusivity claims. Our current cultural moment, our current cultural context, everybody says, well, as long as you believe something hard enough, that's good. As long as it's not hurting somebody, just, just believe it with all of your heart and that'll be okay. And Christianity has historically made everybody angry because we've said, no, they're all wrong. Everyone else is wrong. Everyone else is wrong. And not only are we going to say they're wrong, we're going to say their position is not, it's not functional, it's not eternal, and it's not lasting, it's not good. Why? Because the only way you know God, the only way you can know God, is through Christ and Christ 
alone. There's no other way. There's no just believe in your heart as hard as you as, as much as you can. As, as long as you believe it with conviction, you'll be okay. There's not all roads lead to the same end. It's just a different path to get there. I had someone tell me that two months ago. It's not that at all. What God is, is staging for them here, He's preparing them, is to learn that, look, God is not someone to be trifled with. He's not the way our, our American culture kind of prevent, presents Him as the great grandpa in the sky, or worse yet, the buffoon in the sky. He's wholly terrifying. He's perfect in His justice, His goodness, and His truth. He destroys His enemies completely and entirely. To wander into His presence lightly is not something to be taken for granted. And Christ is the one who stands in place. Now, the rest of the chapter continues in explaining kind of the role of the Levites in Numbers and how they interact with the people of God. You have two specific sections that follow, verses 8 through 19, where it presents that the the Levites will live off of the provision of God's people. In 20 through 32, it's then presented that their inheritance, they don't get the land. What's being shown in both of these sections, interestingly, is that these groups of people, they don't get the normal benefits that everybody else would get. You don't get to own land. You you don't get to make money. You don't get to grow your own food. You don't get to do the things that all other humans get to do. Instead, what do you have to do? Two parts to it. One, they have to rely entirely on the Lord's provision. How do the priests and the Levites have food? The people of God give it. How do the priests and the Levites have money? The people of God give it. How do the priests and the Levites have anything at all? God has to provide it through His people. So that these people would learn from the very beginning, they would understand that their provider is God Himself. That God is the one who does it. That God is the one who feeds them. That God is the one who clothes them. That God is the one who takes care of them. That He is their provider. This is a picture that I understand very intimately. How do I have food to eat? How do I have money to spend? How do I have a house to live in? And it's God who has provided it, and how has God provided it? For almost 15 years, He's provided it through the people sitting in these chairs. I don't have a second job that's paying me enough money to live, never worked a second job while I've been here. We have 18 members. I've, I've been able to be fully devoted to pastoring this church. Why? Because God has taken care of me, and He's done it through you. But the interesting thing is that the picture is just of God providing for His, his priests, His Levites. But the interesting thing is that the symbolism behind it is that Jesus is ultimately going to be our provision He's going to be the one who resolves all of these needs. He's going to be our great provider. In fact, 20 through 32, where it goes to take up the idea of the inheritance. The Levites don't get an inheritance. 
They don't have access to the land. They don't have any place where they could live in that regard. And uh, we think of today, so many of us rent that it's not an issue. But in this world, if you didn't have land, you didn't have anything. They wouldn't have anything to pass to their kids. They would have no way to, to take care of their family after them. And interestingly, what's happening is they're saying Jesus will ultimately be our inheritance. Why? Because here it's already teaching us that God is their inheritance. Verse 24, therefore I have said of them, they shall have no inheritance among the people of Israel. Why? Because God was their inheritance. And how would they experience God? Interestingly, through the giving of his people and their tithes and their offerings and their sacrifices. Now this is taken up as a theme in Hebrews chapter 9 taken up in 1 Peter chapter 1, amongst other places, where it again presents the ministry of Christ as one in which he is securing for us our inheritance. I love the 1 Peter one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What was he raised to? to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Already you have an inheritance if you're in Christ. He's purchased it. He's waiting in glory for you. Christ who saves from death, Christ who guards the person and place of God, Christ who is the provider and the inheritance. Until we get to chapter 19, and I love reading that one. This one's bizarre, isn't it? You've got to have a red cow, red heifer. Why do you have to have a red heifer? Well, you have this spectacular thing where it's brought out, and Eliezer the priest has to kill the cow and then take some of the blood and sprinkle it toward the place of God and baptize the people of God in their relationship, and then they burn this cow outside the camp, and they save the ashes, and they make this water of impurity. That's going to come to play in just the next section, but the interesting thing is this is, again, giving them category for how Christ will take care of his people. It's instructing them. Because they understood at this point in history, it had been taught as part of God's law for them, that that sin made us dirty. This is a category that we in America don't default to anymore. We default, default to sin is tacky, or sin is uncouth, or sin is politically incorrect, but we don't default to sin is dirty. That was the the default they had. They had been taught that way because God had taught them. Sin is dirty. And as a result, dirty has to be dealt with. I know some of you are in the same category. I've been in your houses. I will eat off your floor any day of the week with no warning because I know it will be so clean because you are maniacal about dealing with dirt. God is no less so with his people. Dirt has to be dealt with. Sin has to be dealt with. And here in chapter 19, this initiation of the purification through the red heifer, the interesting thing is how it's done. What you have here is a people that are unclean. 
They've been grumbling. They're concerned about their death. They're concerned about God's wrath, God's judgment. And what happens is a cow is brought outside the camp. The cow is slaughtered. The cow is sacrificed. The cow is burned. The ashes are preserved. And the people are made clean. Except for three. The priest who did it. The man who burned it and the man who cleaned up after it. And I just love that portrait of a people that are dirty because of sin, and God resolves it through sacrifice, and the people were turned back clean with a handful of priests left behind, dirty in their place. What an idea, what a, what a portrait that they would have. I mean, for them back there, like, this is a sweet deal, right? Prior to the death of this cow, I'm the dirty one and the priest are the clean one. And after we're done with this ritual, I'm the clean one and the priest are the dirty one. We've had this great exchange where they get my record and I get their record. That's a pretty sweet deal. I like that. That same interchange, that same exchange would be picked up in the New Testament and be called the gospel. Where Christ would grow, go to the cross, and on the cross he would take my uncleanness, he would take my sin, he would take my dirt, and he would take that upon himself, and he would give me his record. So that at the beginning of the story, I'm the problem and he's the hero. And on the cross, I'm made clean, and he becomes filthy. I mean, Numbers chapter 19 is already setting the stage so that the Jews should have been ready. They should have seen it. They should have understood. The second category they would have had for understanding sin is not just dirty, but that it was contaminating. It was contagious. It spread. And that's why you have all these purity laws dealing with dead bodies and how things were handled because they understood that sin didn't just stay contained to itself, but it spreads and it touches other things and makes a mess of them. The rest of chapter 19 is dealing with that. What happens if somebody in your house dies? What happens if are all of the things unclean? Interestingly, only if they don't have a lid on them. <laughs> do you have to burn the whole tent? No, just everything that had a lid off. Dealing with what do we do with the contaminating nature of sin? And interestingly, God taking those ashes from the heifer, using the waters of impurity, begin to instruct his people that they can't cleanse themselves. Only God can. They can't restore themselves. Only God can. But God can provide one, a sacrifice, who would make them clean again. Again, you see the category, don't you? Christ, the great purifier, would show up. 1,500 years later, and redeem for himself a people making them pure. What do we do with this, right? Spend a lot of time kind of working through the idea of these kind of portraits, these foreshadowings. What do we do with this? Well, I would say the most important takeaway is probably this. To be reminded that this book is one book. It's the same author. It's continuity all the way through. It's the same story from beginning to end. And the story that was being taught in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 is the same story that's being taught in Matthew 
19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and Revelation 7, 8, 9. It's the same story all the way through. And as a result, we have this great privilege to understand that God didn't make a mistake and didn't have to enact plan B. Jesus wasn't his, oops, Adam didn't work out. Christ wasn't a mistake that was being rectified by God, but instead he was the center point of the entire story. Now the reality is, and this is where we might step on some toes, is that the the, the waters in which we swim currently says that I am the hero of my own story. I remember being taught that actually in a school. Again, literature class, you're the hero of your own story. You go write your story however you want to write it. You do whatever you want to do. You be whatever you want to be. You're the hero of your own story. And the interesting thing is that if we actually pay attention to the scriptures, I've been the villain from the beginning. And so have you. I've got my, my, my characters wrong. And Christ is the hero. And in fact, actually, I think this has very, very important kind of ramifications for our daily lives because the reality of the matter is we spend the majority of our time contemplating me instead of contemplating Jesus. And I'm not going to be so ignorant or blind as to say you won't, you know, you can't take times thinking away from him or thinking about what you need to eat or how to take care of your kids or things of the sort like that. I don't mean that. What I mean, though, is that how often does the beauty of Christ intrude into our thoughts? I mean, be honest with yourself. These are the kind of passages, like I said earlier, that they they show me my weakness, but I'm going to be honest, they show my self-centeredness. Because this is not a passage that I immediately read and go, oh, this immediately makes my life better. This passage is not a list of the seven ways that Michael can live his better life now. These aren't, it's not a list of the four tips for parenting. It's not the six things I can do to be a better husband. It's not, uh, this is pastoring 101 or 301. Because honestly, let's be honest, that's that's how we read the Bible. We're, We're the center point always. It's always about me. And in doing so, that's why we make chapters 18 and 19 and passages like this so dreadfully boring. It's because we're not, we're not having the beauty of Christ kind of intrude into our brains. We're not having his glory kind of seep through into our daily experiences. When we're driving, we get the radio on, or worse yet, talk radio on, and we get so captivated by those things that we, we never have just those moments of brilliance in the car where it's like, look, the Lord's been faithful to me, and Christ has never left me, and what a beautiful Savior he is that he took my sin from me, and he's made me new, and he's placed me within a home with people that he's transforming, and we get to walk together, and I have a life to come, and I have an inheritance waiting, and I have a spirit indwelling me, and I'm a different person than I used to be. How beautiful Christ is. How lovely 
You see, one of the great and dreadful contributions that we've made to the world church as a nation is that we've turned out a church that is so focused on pragmatic solutions that we've really kind of neutered the historic practice of just delighting in the beauty of Jesus. And friends, I want you to live your best life. I want you to be good parents, great spouse if you're married, holy single person if you're not. I want all those things for you. I want you to live a great life. I want you to have all of the good things that the Lord ordains, even including suffering to sanctify you, but even more than those things. I want you to see Jesus as lovely. I want you to see Jesus as lovely. And here's why. Many of you right now are living a very, very good life. Many of you right now are living a life that has very little difficulty with you. It's easy, by and large. All of those kind of pragmatic things don't go with you into difficulty. The beauty of Jesus does. You've heard this from me as a repeated theme, but it is one that is so exceptionally important to me, is you prepare for difficulty when it's not difficult. Because if you wait till it's hard, it's too late. This is our story in our family. Ten months ago yesterday, I was dying in the ICU. If I waited until that day to prepare my heart to suffer, it's too late, friends. I wouldn't have been ready. The beauty of Jesus goes with you. The glory of Christ goes with you. You fix that in your mind. You fix that in your heart. Friends, that will walk the halls of the hospice house in a way like nothing else. Me living my best life now, that doesn't go that far. The beauty of Jesus certainly does. Father in heaven, we admit our weakness. It's not hard to see. Forgive us for our sin. Give us the eyes to see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.